purpose of clarity, this is a formal disclaimer. The Six Screens Tele-Network encompasses a wide range of theological discussions in attempting to allow freedom of speech and thought. Unlike the Watchtower organization, you will experience religious ideology, beliefs, and expressions that are not considered mainstream and may differ considerably with your understanding of Scripture. The Six Screens Tele-Network, its moderators, its guests, and callers and of course the Upper Room Ministry of New England, are not necessarily in agreement or endorse all of the various views of theology here presented. Thank you. Okay, folks, my name's Rick Farron, and live from Pennsylvania, it's David Stein with the Bible Students. David, you're on there with us. I am indeed, Rick. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, David. Wow, I see you're bringing a lot of people in here tonight, and that's very, very good. So the six screens want to tell you that, uh, hey, it's good you could come on and have a program here once a month. And, you know, I consider you uh, folks allies with us. So you, you know, we're always here exposing the Watchtower. So that's what I consider you folks as well as our helpers in exposing the real problems that are hidden in that organization. Indeed, Brother Rick. And I'll tell you another thing. One of the things that Bible students uh, are very much interested in, especially with respect to our friends and the witnesses and uh, ex-witnesses that have come out, is to trace a little bit of the history of that organization, to show where they have gone wrong in innumerable places, and also to show a little bit about how the Bible students uh, have separated from the society, uh, both in the doctrine and the uh, spirit of the doctrine. Well, that's good, uh, David. No doubt, uh, you know, it's interesting to to listen, listen to different uh, thoughts on Christianity, different views, and uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that not everyone coming in will agree totally, but, I mean, you know, really, who has all the answers on Christianity to begin with? Well, that's right. Our, our purpose is just to stimulate thought. You know, if we embrace the Lord Jesus, I mean, that, that is a good step first for uh, for everyone. And anyone that can call upon the name of Jesus, we can have a good relationship with and we can discuss. And hopefully we have the spirit of uh, joy in our hearts and the spirit of tolerance. And as you mentioned uh, earlier and your disclaimer mentioned, we appreciate the spirit of liberty. I know when Thank I left you. Jehovah's Witnesses back in 1975, uh, coming into the Bible students was such a breath, air, breath, uh, a breath of fresh air. You could actually stand up within an ecclesia and say, you know, I have a little bit of a different uh, point about it. And the church wouldn't jump all over you and whatnot. They'd say, well, let's discuss it. Let's have a dialogue. So I hope that's the spirit that will pervade uh, this evening as well. Thank you very much. I'm back again. My name is Tom. Oh, hello, Tom. Hello. Hello, Tom. In fact, Tom was on our program last night. He was on the Upper Room Ministries today, Tom. We've got another program coming on here right now, and uh, uh, you won't hear me too much. There's a number of other people on here, though, Tom, and they love you. They're glad that you're coming to Christ. They're glad that you want to really come to grips with uh, the real God of the Bible now that you left the Watchtower. In fact, uh, uh, Tom, uh, David, just got out of the organization this week. He's leaving the Watchtower organization, and he found us on the six screens, and he's wanting to come in. He's getting a lot of encouragement from everyone. So what I want you to do, Tom, is you kind of just hang in there tonight, and when David opens up the lines, by all means, let him know you're on there, okay? Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, Rick, and I just have felt like I, for the first time in my whole life, I 
felt somewhere where I really belong because with the witnesses I never felt like I fit in because I felt they they never accepted me. Okay, thanks very much for uh, sharing that. Again, what we would ask you to do, and uh, I know there's probably a lot of other people out there too that want to chime in as well, if you would give us a little bit of time, uh, here's how I hope to uh, lay out the program today. We've got a panel uh, consisting of uh, three brothers that uh, are Bible students, and we're going to discuss the Jehovah's Witness version of their history. You know that they, they, uh, they put this DVD out not too long ago, and uh, we've reviewed it, and we think there's a number of things that need to be corrected. So we're going to spend about an hour or so with our panel and uh, get their input on some various parts of the history, at least the way the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, see it, and do some correction work there, uh, bring in uh, folks that really know the history of the organization. And then after that, we're going to open it up and try to entertain some suggestions and get some uh, dialogue. So, uh, Rick, any, uh, any other instructions or uh, oversights that you'd like to make? Uh, no, I uh, I think everything's pretty well. I think I'm going to uh, step aside, give you the control panel here. I'll, I'll be right here, though, David, if you do run into a problem. But uh, I, I think you can handle it. But I'll be uh, listening in here. If there's something that goes haywire, I'm right here, so don't you get nervous. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Folks, we really want to thank uh, Rick and the uh, six screens of the Watchtower Telenet for giving us this uh, this time. We're very appreciative. And as I say, uh, and as he said, we're, we're shoulder to shoulder with them as soldiers of the truth. We want the truth to come out, and you know that the Watchtower organization, while they uh, commend themselves as a bastion, the only bastion of truth in this world, we know that that's not true, and that there's many things going on there that uh, need to be uh, highlighted and exposed. But we're going to concentrate on, our, uh, on the history of Jehovah's Witnesses and going to mix in a little bit of history of the Bible students as well. Uh, I have uh, uh, possibly four uh, brothers uh, on the phone. I, I'm going to ask Jim Parkinson, are, are you on with us uh, this evening? And uh, please uh, unmute your phone, star one. All right, I don't hear from Jim. Hopefully Jim will, uh, will join us. Uh, Jim has actually been uh, uh, mixing up with uh, witnesses and ex-witnesses for a while. You may recognize his name. Uh, he was interviewed on uh, one of the other uh, programs here on the Six Things not too long ago. But joining us that I know are on are our brothers Brian Kutcher, Jeff Mezra, and Rolando Rodriguez. And I'd like to go in that order if uh, each of you could say a little bit about yourselves for our audience. Brian, if you wouldn't mind starting. Hey, can you hear me at this time? I can. Very good. Okay, good. Uh, I'm an elder of the Berean Bible Students of Michigan, Ecclesia, here in uh, Canton, Michigan. Uh, I've been an archivist of Bible student material since 1971, especially since 1976, when I was given a small 100-foot roll of film of Pastor Russell speaking in the photodrama of creation. It turned out to be the introduction to Part 2. And since then, I've uh, put the entire photodrama together, minus about 20 minutes of film that uh, I don't think I'll ever get out of the Watchtower Society. <laughs> uh, I dedicated my life to God's service in 1973, and I was immersed in 1974. That's enough for now. Fantastic. Thank you very much, uh, Brian. And incidentally, folks, uh, uh, in the Bible students, Brian is recommended as a fantastic source of historical information. I've never had the opportunity to visit his home, but I'm, I'm told it's like going into the Library of Congress with the, uh, the old material that he has and the media 
the sounds and movies that have come down. So uh, he really uh, is one who has educated himself on, on histories. Our next guest is uh, our brother, Jeff Mezzera. Jeff, can you say a few words about yourself? Hi, can everyone hear me? Yes, very good. Hi, my name is Jeff. I'm uh, in Chicago area here. I've been attending the class here for uh, many years and also been a Bible student historian, but more uh, in regards to where Brother Russell got the doctrines from and trying to trace back uh, uh, where he collated these materials from, uh, especially the names that he mentioned and uh, have a, a large collection uh, that we've put out on DVD-ROM with thousands of pages, uh, available for anyone who would like it. Uh, my religious history, my uh, early childhood was not, uh, uh, did not have any religious instruction at all. Uh, there were some debates between my mother and father as to how we should be raised. And by the time I was a teenager, we had studied in our home with Jehovah's Witnesses for a couple of years. Uh, my father was a Bible student, so it was uh, very interesting to listen to the two of them uh, discuss back and forth their differences of opinion. And uh, uh, I was pulled the way that I thought Jesus was leading me and the way that the scriptures taught, and I too became a Bible student. Okay, well, thank you very much, Jeff. We appreciate that. Uh, Jeff, as he mentioned, he has done a lot of research on the development of Christian doctrine through the whole gospel age. Uh, he's another one that has written extensively on it and has uh, many, many books on, on doctrinal changes and developments, uh, especially since uh, about the 18th century onward. So another great resource that we have among the Bible students. Uh, our uh, next guest is uh, our brother, Rolando Rodriguez, and, Rolando, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, good evening. Can you hear me okay out there? Sounds good. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Rolando Rodriguez. I live in New Jersey. I am a, uh, also somewhat of a historian, um, uh, having uh, always enjoyed history, even when I was with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and, um, and uh, focusing... I did focus a lot of areas, but I focused more on uh, the, the later years of Pastor Russell after he died and all the, the various changes and offshoots that, that, that prevailed as a result uh, of his death and the takeover of Judge Rutherford. Um, I was born and raised a Catholic. Uh, when I was about uh, 19 or 20, uh, I converted to the Jehovah's Witnesses by a childhood friend. Um, that was around 1982, got baptized in 83, learned about uh, uh, Pastor Russell's writings around 1985, um, got my first set of uh, volumes, the Studies in the Scriptures, around 1988, and uh, met the Bible students for the first time in 1990, because during that time, as uh, you all know, uh, we were always told as Jehovah's Witnesses that Bible students did not exist, that they were all dead, and those who survived became Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but I soon found out that that was not true. And so um, uh, I felt a, a kinship with uh, Pastor Russell and, and, and his view of the plan of salvation, and um, eventually uh, 
separated from the Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, um, here I am today. Rolando, how long has it been since you left Jehovah's Witnesses? I left in 1994, I believe it was. 1994. Okay, great. Well, folks, you can see that uh, Rolando has been an ex-witness, so uh, he has gone through uh, a lot of what uh, many of you are experiencing right now. Uh, Let me give a little bit of a history of myself. I am a former Jehovah Witness. Uh, In fact, I'm an ex-Bethelite. I was at Bethel uh, in the early 70s. I left Jehovah's Witnesses in 1975 and came into the Bible students and am currently serving as an elder in the Allentown, Pennsylvania uh, Ecclesia of Bible Students. Uh, My interest, of course, in uh, the society and in history is a natural part of coming out of that organization, and I'm real excited to uh, be here, uh, again, to have this time that uh, Rick Farron has offered us, and uh, we hope that it will be a a blessing to everyone. Well, our subject tonight is the history of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'm going to assume most of you have seen the, uh, the movie that the Witnesses released last year called uh, Faith in Action. I assume since it ends before the history is done that this is going to be the first of two or three DVDs that the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to uh, supply. And it is their view of their history. And so the question is, how accurate is that view? Well, I think uh, if you've watched that and if you've done much research at all, that you probably picked up on things that were spun very, very quickly. So I'm going to uh, begin to ask some questions to address uh, to our panel. And uh, let me ask one more time, is Jim Parkinson with us? And Jim, if you are, you have to unmute your phone doing a star one. All right, Jim's not here. I hope he's able to join us later. So it looks like I'm uh, backed up by three stalwart brothers, and uh, we'll see how we do. Here's the first question. And uh, indeed, on a conference call, it's a little hard to negotiate a panel since I can't see the brothers. So we've actually got a a little Skype connection going in the background, which uh, hopefully will help coordinate our answer. But our first question is, uh, did Pastor Russell... Uh, found Jehovah's Witnesses as they claim and as they uh, teach on that DVD. Uh, Brother uh, David, I think I'm here now. Oh, Jim, Jim I'm so Parker. glad. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, let me ask for just for a moment before we get going, we had a chance for each of the brothers on the panel, uh, Brian Kutcher, Jeff Mesra, Rolando Rodriguez, and myself, to uh, introduce ourselves and say a little bit about it for uh, our audience. Jim, could you say a few words about yourself and uh, your interest in the Watchtower? Uh, sure. Uh, my grandparents were in it uh, back in the days of Brother Russell. Uh, when uh, Rutherford took over, by whatever means, uh, they tended to lose their interest in it. And uh, then there was a, a movement to get the public witness work started outside the society called uh, the Dawn, and that rekindled their interest. So uh, I was born during those years, and uh, in growing up, uh, I've been interested in it because it was blessings for all the families of the earth through the blood of one Savior, Jesus Christ, and that is the message that I'd like to get across to the whole world. Now, I did something that uh, most witnesses are discouraged from doing. Uh, I went to college, and while I was there, uh, found out that 
they had the largest collection of Bible papyrus manuscripts uh, in the uh, Western Hemisphere and fourth or fifth largest in the whole world. So I've been able to help make those uh, pieces of information available to uh, others over the many years. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, you certainly have by a the background. Way, my, by the way, my wife is an ex-witness. She was uh, in, in Belgium and then in Canada before coming here. All right, so you certainly have uh, have been able to feel the uh, the difficulties of the of leaving the society and the uh, difficulties of staying within the society from personal experience. Fantastic. Well, let's get started on our discussion of the history. And uh, believe me, folks, uh, there is much more here than what we can cover in an hour and a half and still leave time for your input and your questions. So uh, we're going to try to move forward and uh, probably not cover it as in detail that we would like, but hopefully raise some questions and stimulate some thinking. So the question is, did Pastor Russell found Jehovah's Witnesses as, uh, as they say? From our uh, expert panel here, who would like to uh, comment on that first? Well, I can get started. Uh, that what, ahead, he founded, yes, what he started was... Uh, the Watchtower back in 1879, and uh, that was not to be a closed corporation by any means. It was an invitation to uh, others to see if they were uncomfortable where they were, uh, that they could come out and be free, not, again, entangled in another uh, organizational bondage. Uh, of course, that changed after Brother Russell died. And... Uh, so I think, well, there's a good place to begin. And he also mentioned in one short article, do not urge the unready to come out of Babylon. Hmm. You know, it is interesting in your comment, Jim, that the Watchtower was started as a place where Christian liberty and freedom could be found. Isn't it ironic considering the state of the organization today? I see Brian would like to uh, make a comment. Brian, go ahead. All right. Uh, I have a copy of the uh, charter, which was uh, which was registered on December fifteenth of eighteen eighty four for Zion's Watchtower Tract Society, as it was called in those days. Now, it, this is the first formal charter. Br Brother Jim is correct in stating that it was uh, the Watchtower magazine was founded at that time, but the uh, corporation was uh, uh, actually made a legal entity in eighteen eighty four, as I said, and. Mm -hmm. uh, the second uh, point in this charter is the purpose for this corporation, for which this uh, corporation is formed, is the dissemination of Bible truths in various languages by means of the publication of tracts, pamphlets, papers, and other religious documents, and by the use of all other lawful means which its board of directors duly constituted shall uh, deem expedient for the furtherance of the purpose stated. Uh, there's nothing there about it being a theocratic uh, headquarters or... or uh, Location, central location of all truth, but to merely publish uh, Bible truths uh, in so much as they are understood. Quite a different charter from what we see today, indeed. Rolando, you have a thought. Yes, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Okay. Uh, well, just to kind of add to uh, what everyone else stated, um, you know, Pastor Russell often stated that the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society was nothing more than a business. It was a way to to print uh, liter Bible-based literature and offer it to 
to the Lord's people at a, at a very economical price, or even free if they couldn't afford to do it. He, he never intended for it to become um, uh, this, this, this huge organization that would be uh, uh, a, uh, a, a world headquarters uh, dictating Bible studies what they could and couldn't do uh, in, in harmony with, with his will. But uh, it was just a, a publishing house, a business that he used. The congregations were all autonomous, governing themselves. And um, he often stated that if, if the organization became uh, organized, that it would become part of Babylon and that we should leave it immediately. Mm-hmm. Over. Well, that's very interesting uh, business. I guess in today's jargon, we would call it a non-profit business or a not-for-profit business. But that really puts a different slant on uh, the witnesses who today are very denominationally minded. Uh, Jeff, you have a thought. Just making sure everyone can hear me? Yes, we can. All right. I was watching the video earlier today, and uh, just to refresh my memory on what, uh, what we're discussing tonight. And I noticed that during the Russell Eaton debate section that uh, one of the governing bodies said that the Bible students at the time could see that the Bible truths that he was teaching were clear on many of the points. Yet, if you look at what the Bible students continue to teach and what the Jehovah's Witnesses are teaching today, you can see that most of the Bible truths they've thrown out now, these would include salvation, uh, who could be saved, who could not. All the prophetic and chronological views were changed. And even the interpretation of what 1914 was, was reinterpreted during the course of their change of doctrines. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Uh, David, I'd like to read something from his uh, six volumes of studies of the scriptures, uh, New Creation, page 314, number three, uh, as character of profitable meetings. Mm -hmm. There should be be frequent regular meetings at which reasonably full opportunities would be given to anyone to present what he might believe to be a different view of truth from that perhaps generally held and approved by the Ecclesia. That's fascinating. Uh, You know, when I was in a witness... Uh, in the witnesses organization uh, I used to do a lot of reading of the old watchtowers in the Kingdom Hall library and more than once uh, I came to a watchtower study or a book study on Tuesday nights and I would raise my hand and uh, give a thought that I'd gotten from one of the uh, older watchtowers and then afterward the elders would get me aside and say well that's not true and I say well I I showed them where it was oh oh, that's been changed that's not our view anymore But even even there, changes with the organization, it shows that there is an absolute intolerance of anything that does not hold the party line. Whereas, as you just read, the Watchtower was founded on the idea that everyone should have a full and complete opportunity to express themselves, even if it's a thought not in, um, in harmony with the rest. And you know, Jim, I, I appreciate that you read that comment because I've I read instruction elsewhere, or at least uh, a- advice in the, the the church arrangements, the ecclesia, as we call them, church, uh, church arrangements, that uh, even if a brother has a completely different view on a subject, 
he should be permitted at least once a year to present that view to the brethren. Uh, and uh, he wouldn't, of course, be allowed to bring it up every week, as that would be disruptive. But having liberty in Christ, he should be permitted to uh, bring it up at least once a year. Uh, that's the kind of organization and that's the kind of Christian liberty that I, I would expect. Anyone else have another uh, another thought on this uh, question? Did Russell found Jehovah's Witnesses? Uh, it would seem like the answer is no. Founder of the Watchtower, yes, but uh, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, no. Well, let's go on. Uh, how old are Jehovah's Witnesses? If we watch the uh, DVD, Faith in Action, uh, it looks like Jehovah's Witnesses are just about 2,000 years old. Um, how, how, would you, uh, how would you address that uh, assertion? Jeff? Sorry, I had to unmute the phone. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> oh, by the I, way, Jeff, I before you start, so. let me let me give a little uh, a little sign. For those of you that are listening, you're listening to the six screens of the Watchtower Telenet, and the Bible students are on this evening. This is the first of what we hope will be a, uh, a monthly uh, conference call. And uh, our subject tonight is the History of Jehovah's Witnesses, an overall review of the Jehovah's Witnesses DVD, Faith in Action. Right now we're uh, running some questions and uh, talking to a panel of uh, brothers that we've assembled to uh, discuss it. And uh, we're going to continue to do that for a while. And uh, in about uh, uh, half an hour, 45 minutes or so, uh, we're going to ask for comments and questions. So in the meanwhile, if you would all just uh, uh, hold, hold tight, and uh, we'll move forward. Uh, don't forget to write your questions down if there's something that uh, any of the brothers that have said that you'd like to comment on. We'll give you a full opportunity uh, in a little bit. All right, Jeff, uh, back to you on the age and, uh, of Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses named themselves as such in 1931. But it was by that time that, as I stated in my previous comment, that the majority of what they were teaching had changed over the course of the 1920s now you know nothing happens in a complete vacuum and in their history dvd they try and point out different individuals that believe similarly to the way that they do uh, throughout the course of uh, history starting all the way back to adam and eve as you can see in the film but uh, even some of the examples that they gave of isaac newton or joseph Priestley. Uh, Henry Grew and uh, George Storrs, uh, much of what they taught uh, is not even remotely similar uh, to the witnesses, especially in regards to salvation. Uh, but uh, a lot of these individuals did not believe in Trinity, but, uh, uh, and a lot of them didn't agree with each other. In, in the video, uh, one example I saw was uh, George Storrs and Henry Grew were discussing uh, with each other. And it's like they got along very, very well with each other. But if you look at the uh, history of these two men, they debated for years and years the topic of whether or not the wicked would be resurrected. And the debate was made very public amongst uh, the readership of Storrs uh, magazine. Uh, that's not something that you see amongst uh, Jehovah's Witnesses of today. Yeah, that's a very important point, I think. Uh, one of the qualifications they claim to identify the true worshipers of Jehovah is their agreement with one another. Well, clearly they do not agree with many of the positions that these men of the past have taken, that they are placing 
upon them that organizational title of Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's very interesting, uh, as you just mentioned, that many of them did not agree with themselves. Certainly, we would say from a generic standpoint, you know, that these were faithful Christians. They were witnesses of the truth, witnesses of Jehovah, if you will, but not in the organizational uh, sense or organizational title sense that the witnesses would like to apply today. When they all think alike, it's because only one of them's doing the thinking. <laughs> That's an unfortunate true, isn't it? Isn't it, Jim? Rolando, I see that you uh, would like to chime in here. Yeah, just to kind of add to the comment, it's interesting because you know um, the society goes beyond uh, the two thousand years of the church history. They they would say that uh, Abel was actually the first Jehovah's Witnesses, so that they've been around for some six thousand years. But you know, as as Jeff mentioned, they have in their various writings um, pinpointed certain individuals um, who they claimed were faithful witnesses of Jehovah. Um, but you know, the one thing is that they have always claimed that God has had a a a, a governing body uh, on 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 the earth, um, and you wonder where they have been for two thousand years because. Uh, they can't seem to point to any specific time or place where the governing body was other than that, that Council of Nicaea 2,000 years ago and then uh, uh, when Pastor Russell supposedly came on the scene and, and instituted the governing body arrangement. So, you know, even, even their, their, their history is, is a bit fuzzy in, in that regard. Curious, isn't it, that the, uh, when you consider the, uh, the function uh, of uh, the governing body in in the, the Watchtower Society today, uh, it's much closer in form and in authority to that Nicene Council than than anything else in history. Very very sad, very sad. Well, let us go on to uh, our next couple of questions. We've already started to talk a little bit organizationally of of what it was that Pastor Russell set up. Uh, one of our panelists mentioned earlier that in uh, Charles Russell's view, the Watchtower Society was a, a religious printing house, a business that printed and distributed religious literature. He did not in any way consider it to, to be a denominational uh, or a denomination or in any way uh, trying to uh, lord it over the Lord's sheep, but rather just to distribute uh, what was really uh, the work of an association of individuals. In fact, one of the corporations that Russell used was called the Associated Bible Students, which I, I think may in fact still belong to the society as a corporation. I don't, I don't know, or some variation of that. But the whole idea of an association of individuals uh, indicates that there's a, a, a fair degree of latitude in, in thinking and uh, in liberty uh, to be taken place. But that changed when uh, Bayhead Rutherford came on the scene and at the end of 1916. Uh, Russell became ill and died while uh, on a trip uh, serving the brethren. Incidentally, he, dried, he died penniless, so uh, all of the uh, money that he had earned uh, in his uh, personal businesses earlier in his life had been completely invested uh, in uh, the work that he had done through the Watchtower Society. But 1916, that thing started to change. There were organizational and doctrinal changes, and let's focus in a little bit uh, on that. A panel... What organizational changes did uh, Rutherford begin to institute when he took uh, 
control and the reins of the Watchtower Society in 1916-1917. Who would like to be first in uh, commenting on that? Well, I could add a couple. Okay, Jim, go ahead. Okay. Well, one what there would uh, be a death insurance policy to be buried if he died penniless? Yeah. Okay. Is is this Joe? Joe, if you could just hold off a little bit uh, while we get. Uh, I've I've left uh, the vast majority, or I've left the whole conference call unmuted at this point, so anyone can chime in. But we would ask you not to uh, until uh, we get a chance to get feedback from uh, from our panel. Uh, Jim, I understand. One of the first things that uh, one notices is at the Watchtower's annual meeting uh, just after New Year's of 1917 that uh, Rutherford insisted that some bylaws needed to be passed, although there wasn't time to read them. And among them was that uh, votes would be counted only for those who were nominated. And uh, uh, his ally, Brother McMillan was chairman of the business meeting and refused to acknowledge anyone except those who would uh, nominate or second the nomination of J.S. Rutherford. And then one fellow uh, said, uh, proposed that they suspend the rules of balloting and acclaim uh, J.F. Rutherford unanimously elected, which was done. So no one else was permitted to uh, be nominated and no one else could be elected. The following year at the business meeting, with about 163,300 shares voting, Rutherford gets more than 30,000 more votes than the number of shares voting. So I think mm. we can see what happened. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, a successful coup of the society that uh, that Rutherford ran. Uh, interesting to introduce bylaws and not give anybody time to read them. You you wonder, Jim, how uh, brothers in Christ could do things with such audacity, but the opportunity for power and control is a very, very strong temptation. Brian, you have a thought. Yes. Um, first of all, as you mentioned earlier, Brother Russell did not create a governing body. He created, uh, he didn't really create anything. He just allowed brethren, oh, sorry, sorry, brethren got together and they associated themselves with him is how, is how it really worked out. Uh, he didn't... Uh, he did, uh, of course, go about and try to help people to see the Bible truths as he understood them. And uh, as a, uh, a pilgrim, if you will, or a, uh, a one who went, went from town to town as part of his uh, preaching work early on, uh, later on, of course, the Watchtower did that work for for him. To, it went out into the mails. Uh, they were autonomous study groups that were set up. They weren't ruled or governed by Pastor Russell or by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And an interesting point that, uh, as Brother Jim just mentioned, about the number of voting for uh, for Rutherford, uh, I remember uh, interviewing one of the, uh, what we call the old-timers, those who were there at the time in Brother Russell's day, and she told me that, uh, uh, I believe it was Mary Norby, uh, she told me that uh, uh, she voted uh, for someone other than Judge Rutherford, but it was announced that Rutherford was elected unanimously. And she said, it was not unanimous, because I know I voted against him. And there were others also. So, so this is this is not not unusual for for the behavior of that time. Uh, uh, I uh, could add to that that the way Rutherford sent out the proxies, that uh, the proxy holder could vote the proxy any way he pleased, regardless of what the person had designated. Yes. 
there were also those who were a bit confused as to what they should do, so they sent their proxies in a blank to Macmillan and Van Amberg, uh, hoping that they would do the right thing because they had been serving with Pastor Russell for the longest, and uh, they used it. And what they did was they took all these blank proxies and put their names on it, and that's how they, they got a lot of the votes. Wow, what a what a shame. What what a sad history. And you know that 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 type of machinations that take place at the uh, very beginning of uh, of Rutherford's uh, uh, oversight there, uh that's a bad fruitage right off and and you know you can't expect it to uh, to improve from there. Uh all right, so organizationally we see that that Rutherford was uh, was very coy with his knowledge of the law. Um he really used very unethical means to uh, take the reins of power. Uh, but but power he grabbed, and president of the society he began. Uh, what did he start to do next? All right, now he's got firm control of the organization. Uh, what is his next uh, move, at least in terms of instructions to the brethren and uh, in doctrines? Who would like to comment on that? Brian, go ahead. I'm, well, I'm not sure I know exactly what happened right away, but that he he got to the point where he was uh they were dictating who would be elders in in the classes and uh, in the mid 20s uh brother ed lorenz told me that uh, the classes were uh being told that so and so will be an elder and so and so will not and uh, that was not a brother russell set things up interesting interesting uh, what what was uh, uh, uh charles russell's instruction with respect to elders what kind of organization did he suggest that would uh, that would be useful to the to the brothers and sisters back then, Jeff. Um, I was just going to discuss on the previous comment oh, okay. that uh, in Germany in the nineteen early nineteen twenties, uh, if you've ever read uh, Schnell's book on thirty years thirty years a watchtower slave, uh, they were running experiments, I guess you could say on how to get more full control over the brethren there and also how to uh, force them. I don't know if that's the best term to use, but let's say encourage. <laughs> encourage them to go door to door to witness and to write out their time on these little cards. Now, this was never expected before. Uh, slowly over the period of the 1920s, uh, changes here and there were brought in uh, until you got to the late 1920s and early 1930s when uh, basically all those who had been with Brother Russell before, a great majority of them had simply left because the organization they were in and what they used to believe was now something different. Uh, Rolando could give you the estimate as to how many of them had left by that time. But uh, really, the, the majority of the folks that were in the society at that time uh, were new in, in the faith. And for them, it didn't really matter what was taught previously. It was all new to them. Okay. Rolando, I'm going to come back to you on, on, that, uh, on that question about what percentage of those that were in the Watchtower Society in, in uh, Brother Russell's time uh, had left by uh, by the end of the 1920s. What what is that percentage? 
Well, if I could those, who, those who worked closely with Pastor Russell um, and had been with, with the movement for a number of years, um, it's been estimated that about 75% of the original Bible students had separated from the society. Not, not all left right away. Some were still trying to figure things out, but throughout the 20s, more and more left. Now, those who stayed, as Brother Jeff mentioned, were only in the society a, a number of years, maybe two or three years. They were far removed from Brooklyn Bethel um, and, um, you know, didn't really have a, 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 a good grasp or good hold on, 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 on things. So, you know, it was very easy for them to just kind of go along with, with the new procedures as, as handed down by, by, by Judge Rutherford through the, through the Watchtower. Interesting. 75% then. So that means that by the late 20s, uh, at, at a maximum, there was only about 25% of the Bible students that were back in Brother Russell's time still in the society. Fascinating. David? Yes, Jim. Uh, numbers are for 1925, the memorial, there were just over 91,000 partaking, and 1926 and 7, they did not report the numbers. And in 1928, it was just over 19,000. That's mm. where the 75% leaving came from. Interesting. Very interesting. That's you know, a this, uh, 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 Go ahead. That's uh, quite a few. I, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, I was listening uh, to uh, Rick's program last night, and he was reporting on the current number of partakers, uh, at least uh, last year, from the latest yearbook that the witnesses uh, have uh, have published. And it was up to about 11,000. So they're having an internal problem now. They're watching the number of partakers uh, at their memorials go up. And, of course, that's exactly contrary to what... Uh, what they're expecting uh, to, to happen, uh, as they uh, are primarily calling what they, they call the, uh, the earthly class. I wanted to get back, uh, we were talking about organizational changes. Uh, as was mentioned, the, the society under Rutherford began to dictate the appointment of elders in the society. What was the arrangement for elders in uh, Russell's time? Anybody want to jump in on that? Could you repeat that, please? What was the arrangement for selecting elders in Brother Russell's time, as opposed to the society appointing them uh, later in, under Rutherford's rule? Well, they, it was each individual ecclesia elected its own. Voted in. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And that is, uh, for, uh, for our folks in the audience, that is the arrangement that uh, the, uh, the Bible students use today. Uh, individuals are selected on the basis of their character and uh, their ability to expound the truth. And these are our shepherds. The society, uh, from thousands of miles away from many of the ecclesias, would not know any of those things in any great detail. So the presumptuousness of saying, well, we'll appoint your elders for you, shows that it's uh, strictly an arrangement for power. Rolando, please. Well, yeah, I was about to say that, you know, that's all outlined in the sixth volume uh, the new creation where Brother Russell talks about the organization of the new creation of the church and, and gives an outline of uh, a scripture outline of how the ecclesias, the congregations should should 
organize themselves on an, on an ecclesial level and mm-hmm. um, uh, stated that, uh, you know, elders and deacons and, 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 and the other officers should be voted on. And he recommended a 75% of those in attendance who were voting, uh, would, that person would get the vote. But, you know, during the years, um, some thought that perhaps 75% was a bit too harsh so to speak, because you would leave the the the, 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 the affairs of the of the congregation in the hands of the minority, the 25 percent who can throw things off. So, you know, Brother Russell wasn't so uh, 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 adamant and dogmatic about it. You know, he he gave his suggestions and he told the the, the brethren through the pages of the Watchtower. He said, "Listen, 75 percent is what I recommended, but if you want to do 60 percent, if you want to do 51 percent." That's, that's up to you. So, you know, he left it into the hands of, of the congregations and, 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 and the brethren there uh, to handle matters uh, the way they, they choose to. But in any event, whether it was 51% or 75% or 80%, um, uh, the, the officers of every congregation were elected by the members of the congregation, unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses where it's, it's a, a trickle down from, from the Watchtower Society that they kind of handpick their, their elders and ministerial servants, not based on their character, not based on, on their knowledge, but based on their years of service and, and their, 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 um, uh, their, their, their field service reports, how many magazines they've sold or placed, how many Bible studies they've had. And, and, and in, in, in other words, people became elders and ministerial servants uh, based on their works and not so much on their character and knowledge of the truth. Yeah, and that's that's the practical truth. Uh, of course, the society will point to the instructions that the Apostle Paul gave to uh, Titus and Timothy in the election of elders, and, and uh, they, they will, of course, uh, follow that nominally. But uh, as you mentioned, Rolando, and I saw this myself when I was in the witnesses, it was how, uh, how close to the organization individuals were that seemed to be uh, the more uh, powerful of the factors. Brian, you have a thought. Uh, yes, it's 1917 organizational changes uh, with regard to the, uh, the board of directors. I can't remember the exact term used for them, but there were uh, half of the board were dismissed by JFR. Uh, it was Judge Rutherford. That is, he was he, he said that they were in office illegally, and if they were in office illegally, then he was too because they were in office the same way that he was <laughs> in the office. <laughs> Oh, so he, and, and it was quite frankly illegal for him to dismiss them the way he did. It was supposed to be done through a vote, uh, and uh, wow. this happened. So it was uh, it was a very uh, tumultuous time. Uh, I, I personally knew uh, Sister Rose Hirsch, whose husband uh, Robert Hirsch was on that board, and uh, my goodness, you know the, the things that they lived through. Uh, Sister Hirsch lived uh, to 1984, and uh, she was 106 when she passed away. And um, a lot of wonderful memories. And, you know, the, the amazing thing is, well, and, and it shows her Christian character in, in many respects, is that she would not talk about these times uh, in detail. Uh, I, I tried to interview her and ask her questions about this transition period, and she just tried to smooth it over because she didn't think it was right to talk, you know, about other people properly. What a, what a, to say bad what, things about anyone. Very, what a beautiful, very nice. Over. 
Yeah, what a beautiful spirit uh, that, that so many of them had. And, uh, folks, you're listening to uh, the six screens of the Watchtower Telenet, and this evening we've got Bible students talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses' view of their history, uh, talking about their DVD, Faith in Action, and we've got a panel of Bible students here that are responding to questions. Uh, we still ask everybody to hold their comments and questions uh, for the time being. We have a few more questions we want to get through, and in another uh, uh, 20 minutes or so, we're going to open it up for a general dialogue and discussion. So if you could be patient with us and just hold on a bit more, uh, we're going to cover a few more things. Now, folks on the panel, uh, we were talking about doctrinal changes that uh, Rutherford made. What are uh, some of the other doctrinal changes that Rutherford brought in that were quite different from what the Bible students during Russell's time had believed? Rolando, how'd you like to start us off? Well, the, the first one that I can think of, now, of course, one of the first doctrinal changes he made, which might seem kind of simple and, and, and non-important to, to, to our outside friends, um, was the book uh, uh, Tabernacle Shadows where uh, uh, Rutherford had uh, deviated on, um, on justification uh, from how Brother Russell saw it. And, um, and so what he did was in 1920, 1920, I think it was, he published the uh, Tabernacle Shadows. And in the back, now Tabernacle Shadows is only about a, a page, book of about 100 or so pages. And um, on the back of the book, he, he added these... Uh, uh, appendix, and he, and he stated in the foreword that we don't want to make any changes to the actual book in respect to Russell, but we just want to, you know, add some clarifications. And the appendix was just as big as the book, and he made changes to just about every paragraph. Sometimes deleting a paragraph and rewriting it, um, and totally changing the whole book and the concept of the whole book. And uh, so that was one of the, 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 one of the first changes he made in, in the writings. But um, one, one major change that I can see was the, the issue of the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, as, as most would know, Brother Russell was a Christian Zionist and believed that the, the promises in the Old Testament given to the Jews were, were, were to stay to the Jews, and he did not believe in this, uh, 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 replacement theology that so many of the churches today uh, teach, and, um, and and Judge Rutherford uh, taught this well up until about uh, 1930. Um, in fact, the last book that he wrote, the book called Life, in, in 1929, um, he um, he really pumped up the whole the, the whole Israel thing. In fact, around 1922, he sent some some uh, a Bible student a group out to to Palestine, as it was called, um, and um, uh, he went out there with with the Israeli flag and and uh, you know he was he he he, he sent back report how uh, how the uh, uh, the Jews were returning to to, to Israel and uh, you know it was fulfillment of, of Bible prophecy and they were they were really uh, uh, pounding this 1925 year which they thought was, was going to be the return of the ancient worthies. And, and the ancient worthies are, are those who were listed in the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, you know, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, you know, David, Solomon, all those uh, 
who would come back, all the, 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 the old uh, uh, patriarchs would come back in the flesh. And uh, uh, Judge Rutherford believed that that would happen in, in 1925. But, you know, it, it's interesting because within a year of writing that book, of Life, in 1929, he made a complete turnaround without, without question, without anything. He just, he just threw the whole, the whole issue of, of, of Israel out the door and um, uh, began to teach that, that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, or rather at, at that time, because they weren't really Jehovah's Witnesses still in 1929, 1930, but, but the, the Watchtower Society was now God's chosen people, and that they would, they would uh, be the new Israel, the new nation of Israel, the spiritual Israel. And, um, and, and from that point on, they began to focus the Watchtower magazine and all its articles in regards to uh, um, appropriating to themselves all the prophecies given to the Jews now being given to them. And uh, it's interesting because um, they not only, uh, they adopted just about everything pertaining to the Jews, the structure of, of, of their theocracy, uh, uh, even assuming the name, the Jehovah's Witnesses, which, you know, we, we find in Isaiah 43. 4310, um, you know, it, it's just amazing how, how the organization of the Watchtower Society is more Jewish than it is Christian. <laughs> well, now there might be one additional thing to put in. It's not really all of the prophecies concerning Israel that he applied to the Watchtower. If the prophecy was bad news, then it was applied to the Jews. If it was good news, it applied to the Watchtower. The only problem then was, what if the prophecy has both bad and good news in it? <laughs> a bit convenient, uh, too convenient to be very much believable, I'm afraid. So that's right. So we're seeing then that the society's view of Israel today, which is uh, very uh, anti-Israel and very anti-Zionist, was not in fact where they began from, but an artifact of, uh, of uh, Rutherford. Uh, Jeff, would you like to comment? Hi, just a couple quick comments. Uh, in the video, they talk about uh, when 1914 came, and of course they were expecting 1914 uh, might have been the end of all things, or or later on they were thinking it was the beginning of the end of all things. But it was related to especially the Gentile rule over the nation of Israel. And as I stated earlier, they had to, when they dumped Israel, they had to reinterpret how they saw 1914 uh, much later down the line. But uh, in the video, there's a quote that I thought was interesting. Uh, they quote, I think, Brother Russell stating that uh, we should waste no time thinking that the door is shut. And yet, if you look at what the witnesses had done over the last several decades, that's exactly what they did. They they shut the door. And only now, uh, in the last few years, they've reopened it slightly, which is why uh, you see an uptick on, on their numbers as to how many are partaking from year to year. But uh, I have in front of me a book called The Desolations of the Sanctuary by Emil and Otto Sadlak. And what they do is they it, uh, outline for about 300 and some pages 
all the doctrinal changes of the society through the 1920s. Uh, some things as simple as the omniscience of God, uh, whether or not Satan was ever in heaven, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit uh, upon all flesh, uh, the gospel of the kingdom and, and what that meant to preach it, uh, character development. They no longer saw that uh, as Christians we need to uh, grow more and more Christ-like and, and that we should focus on that as a part of our main uh, dealings in, in learning to be like Christ. Uh, of course, they said 1918, 1921, 1925, 1975, even. Uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats, uh, the, their interpretation of Revelation, and so on and so forth. It's just one thing after another. It, by the 1930s, it was a completely new religion that was entirely foreign to what existed previously. That's fascinating. That's if I were to comment, uh, David, on the single biggest change, I think it would be from the early days when the question was, uh, if Jesus Christ died once for all, then should not all benefit to un the change under Rutherford that, uh, no, if Jesus Christ... Uh, may have died for all, but only Jehovah's Witnesses will benefit. That is a lie. I agree with you because that's just not for the Witnesses. That's for everyone. One of the things that impressed me so much when uh, I read uh, the first volume of Studies in the Scriptures in 1975, I was, uh, I was in a Jehovah Witness ecclesia in Arkansas, Gravit, Arkansas, in fact, 1975, we had been preparing to study a new book that the Society had published at the previous summer conventions in 1974. And uh, the name of the book escapes me at the moment, but it was interesting to me because it had a picture of the chart of the ages in it. And I had had a little contact with uh, the Bible students four years earlier as my dad left Jehovah's Witnesses and came into the Bible students. And so I looked in the library, and there was the first volume, and it might, uh, it, it was very interesting to me that there was the chart of the ages as well. Well, I read the, the, uh, the, the chapter on the chart, and I read the chapter on ransom and restitution. And that was the first time that I ever encountered this idea of a ransom for all. And uh, folks, you uh, out there that are listening to uh, the Bible students, that is the foundation doctrine that we, that we teach, that Jesus died a ransom for all. It is what the Bible students taught prior to Judge Rutherford, and as Jim just mentioned, uh, in so insofar as uh, an earth-shaking change, uh, when you change that, when you say that Jesus didn't die for any, any everyone, but just for us or our denominational group, uh, right away that makes you into a into a, uh, a sect, and uh, right away uh, it starts to uh, change your view of uh, of others in the whole world, and unfortunately that has soured so much of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrine uh, following up on that. I oh, have I never thought of it that way. That's amazing, and I agree with you. Okay, well, thank you, Joe. Again, if you could just hold off uh, a little bit till we uh, finish up. We're getting close. Let me uh, put another plug in, folks. You're listening to the Six Screens of the Watchtower Telenet, and this is the Bible Students. We're having a panel discussion on the history of Jehovah's Witnesses, particularly a review of their movie, Faith in Action, and discussing so many ways in which that, uh, that movie, that history, as presented by 
the witnesses is uh, full of historical uh, inaccuracies regarding the, the Bible students. Well, panel, I have a, another question for you. Uh, you may or may not be aware, those of you that uh, have witness background are, that uh, Rutherford described someone he called the evil slave class uh, that came about in 1918. And basically what he said is that the evil slave class was those that opposed him and his agenda and his uh, running of the Watchtower Society and uh, claimed that uh, that designation was God's judgment uh, upon that uh, those Bible students at that time. What do you say, folks? Are we the evil slave class? Is that really an accurate uh, description? Or is that another spin that Rutherford put on just to scare people away from us? Who'd like to comment on that first? Well, if we were to take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 24, I'll read this from the American Standard Version, which uh, the witnesses also publish. It says, uh, If that evil servant shall slay in his heart, my Lord tarrieth, and shall begin to beat his fellow servants, and shall eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come, actually, literally, shall have come, in a day when he expecteth not, in an hour when he knoweth not, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Uh, now, in this case, it says that the Lord tarrieth. Well, it was Rutherford who postponed the idea of uh, the last day, or the Christ's return, not being in 1874, but postponed it 40 years to 1914, which of course could point to himself rather than to Brother Russell as a, an honorable servant. Mm -hmm. And then beating his fellow servants, well now, didn't he throw an awful lot of people out by the dozens and by the hundreds and by the thousands and shall eat and drink with the drunken? I think his alcoholism is probably pretty well known to all. So the characteristics here would seem to be those more of Rutherford than of those that he expelled. Yeah, thank you, Jim. And uh, folks, please note we're not saying that, uh, that now that we're looking at uh, Rutherford as that evil slave. What Jim is doing is he's doing some very precise exegesis of Scripture. And the application that Rutherford made of the evil slave to the Bible students and to those that opposed him is not very, very good biblical exposition at all. Jeff, you have a thought. I was going to say much of what uh, Jim had already said. The three unique identifiers that he mentioned uh, are definitely there. And what uh, he did change was the concept of the timing of the invisible presence or uh, the secret coming of the Lord that uh, even a lot of the rapture uh, believing Christians in the world do believe that uh, when Jesus comes for his saints he comes uh, first invisibly and then when uh, he comes later on uh, he comes with the saints he can't come for and with the saints at the same time but uh, uh, I'll, I'll let you continue okay thank you well, let's take a little bit higher view. Uh, you've you've David, watched the... Y yes. Um, hold on here. Okay. Yeah, uh, in regards to the evil slave class, um, you know, uh, that has changed somewhat. They've gone back and forth on that. But they, they, the, 
the original um, um, title or, or designation to the evil slave class dealt with with those early Bible students who had separated from the society. And the society through the years have made up so many different, uh, uh, um, there's no kind way to say, but lies <laughs> of, of what really happened after the death of, of Pastor Russell, um, claiming that uh, one of the reasons why uh, we left is because we didn't accept the seventh volume. Others were, the big one was that uh, we didn't want to go door to door. But um, in, um, in uh, let's see here, I'm looking at uh, an article here in Watchtower, June 15, 1987, and it says, uh, by the summer of 1918, at the time of the society's conventions that summer, some apostates turned away, turned away and formed their own group opposing religious groups, manifesting the traits of an evil slave. They were winnowed like shafts to be separated from Jehovah's faithful remnant. Um, and then uh, they go on talking about other things. But, um, uh, you know, so they, they've applied that to, to originally to, to the Bible students that separated back uh, in the early years. Um, and uh, today they they apply the evil slave to any of the anointed uh, who, who lead the organization. So if, if you're spirit begotten, you're anointed, and you leave the organization, this fellowship, get disassociated, you're considered a member of the evil slave. So we're in good company. <laughs> okay, thank you. Let's take a back up for a moment and... Uh, just, I'd like to get feedback from uh, you folks on the panel on the general question. Uh, what are some other inaccuracies that you noticed when you watched the uh, Watchtower DVD, Faith in Action? Were there other things that you picked up on while you were watching their, their spin of history? And I think there's no question it is a spin of history. Uh, were there other, other things that you picked up on that struck you uh, particularly as uh, as inaccurate or uh, not presented uh, in a precise fashion at all. Brian, how about you? Well, I, I don't have anything specific. Uh, just very generally, the, a lot of things were ascribed to the Watchtower doing this and that, when in fact it was Charles Russell who did this and that, uh, as far as the, uh, for example, the photodrama. You know, the Watchtower wrote it. No, Pastor Russell wrote it. Uh, the Watchtower produced it. No, Brother Russell did that. But he did it, of course, under the auspices of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. But mm -hmm. it was his authorship. It wasn't some group writing uh, a doctrinal, doctrinal thesis that came up, a uh, doctoral thesis, as you will, as it will, uh, in writing the photodrama. So, and same with any, any of the work that was done. It wasn't done generally. It was done by an individual primarily, Brother Russell was the watchtower for all intents and purposes uh, because everything that went into the tower had to go through his editorial desk and editing. Uh, that's it. You know, then that's fairly consistent when you think that the watchtower wants to identify themselves as the channel of Jehovah's truth in the 20th and 21st century. They, they want to uh, be very consistent on that. So uh, in spinning the history, 
to be able to say that, well, this was done by the watchtower, it's more emphasizing the channel, rather than the, uh, the uh, individual, namely Pastor Russell, who was involved in that. Uh, Jeff, do you have a thought? I have five pages of thoughts, but uh, I'll have to keep it short. <laughs> anyway, uh, some things are very simple, like like this already been mentioned. When you see Gru and Stores talking, uh, they're simply agreeing on everything, and that wasn't always entirely the case. There was a long uh, debate between the two men, and they, they were so friends, of course, through it all, but uh, we did come out on opposite sides of that discussion. Uh, some of the simple things is... Uh, if you look at the name of the door, it's J.L. Russell and Son when uh, he leaves his business and sells it to start his ministry when, in fact, it was called the Quaker Shop or the Old Quaker Shop. Uh, they have him jump, uh, Brother Russell, jumping directly into not believing in hell or mortal soul, yet they ignore much of his early history when he was uh, scribbling out notes on the sidewalk trying to uh, warn people of their impending or supposed impending doom. Uh, they have him uh, already believing in an invisible presence before he meets Barber when uh, that was uh, only after they met uh, together. Uh, the interpretations of 1914, they think that it was remarkable that he could pinpoint the year that uh, Jesus would return, yet Brother Russell taught that Jesus would return in 1874, not 1914. Uh, there are just so many inaccuracies uh, in it, and uh, we did discuss this once before on the uh, Friends of Jehovah's Witnesses dot com website. There's a uh, video link where you can get much more detail about this uh, on the website there uh, that we simply don't have time to get into this evening. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Anyone else on the panel uh, like to comment on other uh, inconsistencies and inaccuracies on the DVD yeah. Faith in Action? I have one. I'm trying to find it, but I, c- I can't seem to remember where it was. Perhaps Jeff remembers. I, I don't have my notes. Um, but uh, there was the the, the um, they 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 quote um, the uh, Judge Rutherford. They have that that actor. Uh, who, who portrays uh, Judge Rutherford? He's up there on, on, at the convention, and that's when he introduces the uh, uh, the name uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And you know, up up until that time, uh, the 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 uh, the moderator, who's uh, one of the governing body members, is uh, keeps from the very beginning of his comment. He's emphasizing how Jehovah's Witnesses have looked to 1914. As, as a special year, the year of our Lord's return, and you know, yada yada yada, um, and and we know that's that, that's not true. Um, we know that uh, Brother Russell did not believe 1914 was the year our Lord returned, but it was 40 years prior. He believed it happened in 1874, and that 1874 date was something that the society held on to quite a number of years throughout the 20s, and. Um, um, it eventually changed to 1914 without reason or rhyme. Uh, there was no explanation. And so after the Judge Rutherford died, um, it took uh, Raymond France, or Fred France, I should say, um, the, 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 uh, uh, it, it gave him the task of trying to uh, figure out 
the chronology. And so that's when they came up with this new chronology and that 6,000 years did not point to, you know, the 1870s, but it pointed to the 1970s. And that's when they came up with that 1975 year. So it's interesting because they have this actor there, and he's giving the speech that, you know, that Judge Rutherford supposedly gave back, back in the 1930s. Um, and uh, that, that speech in its entirety is reproduced in the Watchtower magazine. But when the, the, they only quote one or two sentences from that article, and it's the whole issue of the dot, 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 and you wonder, okay, what's between those dots? So, of course, I go and I pull out the, uh, the Watchtower magazine, and I start to read. And it's interesting because uh, the actor, from the time he starts his, 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 um, his speech to the time he ends it, um, like I said, it was only like two sentences. But in the actual magazine, it was more like four or five paragraphs. And so when you read between those paragraphs, you find out that, that uh, they were saying that, that Jesus returned in 1874. And, and so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's things like that that are so misleading. The society has been known to, to misquote their own publications, rewriting some of them. And since most Jehovah's Witnesses either don't have the publications or don't even bother to go into the Kingdom Hall library and pull it off the shelf to, to verify uh, whether or not what they say is really what they, they stated back, you know, 50, 60 years, um, they'll never really know the truth. They'll just, they'll just accept it that, well, why would the governing body uh, lie to us? So, um, you know, they know more about our history than we do. So they, they just become lax and just accept whatever is told to them from the platform or from the pages of the Watchtower or even on a DVD. But we know that uh, the society has been responsible for rewriting their history. And, uh, you know, you don't publish for over 100 years without leaving some kind of paper trail that people can follow. <laughs> Yeah, truth can be inconvenient sometimes, uh, can it? R- Rolando, I-, I have a question for you, and, and I see Jeff's got a comment. But, uh, uh, you know, you raised something that I had not thought about before, that I don't know what date they actually changed from believing in the 1874 date to the 1914 date. It never occurred to me that they carried that 1874 date for uh, many years in the 20s. Do you-, do you know precisely when they made that, that change? To be honest with you, um, I can't really say, but um, it, it seems like they were confused because they, they used the date 1874 and 1914 interchangeably, and uh, you can actually see the 1874 date well into the late, uh, uh, the late 20s um, mm. and probably even to the very early 30s up until the time that um, he makes that, uh, that uh, you know, you are now Jehovah's Witnesses. So um, that was 1931 when he changed the name. So uh, as, as, as early as, 19, as late as 1931, they were still teaching the 1874 date. That's, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. All right, Jeff, you've been very uh, patient. Uh, you have some additional input on this. Well, they had to change their interpretation of 1914 because it was so closely tied in with the return of Israel. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. the, first, the first Jewish settlement in 1878. 
That was one of the key dates that the Bible students at the time had looked at as an evidence that God's favor was uh, returning to Israel and that soon they would have a homeland uh, in Palestine of the time. And certainly we see that that happened in 1948, and uh, they also gained control of Jerusalem again in 1967. But, uh, you know, they uh, talked about this paper trail. (laughs) <laughs> and the ADV, the Advertise, Advertise, Advertise of 1922. In the video, they juxtapose this discussion of 1914 and, and how Brother Russell was right about it and pretty quickly follow into this uh, video clip of the actor portraying Rutherford asking the question, do you believe the Lord has returned? And they juxtapose it's 1914 with this 1874 date, but almost they could appear misleading in some ways that they were teaching that Christ had returned in 1914 when indeed that was not the case. But uh, as uh, Rolanda was talking about, they had this other date they, they brought up, the 1975 date. I believe that was first brought out in the Golden Age of 1935. I have in my hand uh, uh, three issues of the Golden Age from March 1935, uh, and there's a, a series of articles they called The Second Hand in the Timepiece of God. And this is when they, they try and you know organize and, and explain some of their new chronological views. And at the same time, they put out this calendar. Now, this calendar was interesting. They, they saw that, you know, the, the days of the week and the names of the days of the month had pagan origins, so they thought they would create a whole new calendar. So instead of being the moon day, it was something else, or January or February, it was the ransom day, or the Lord's day, or, Ye- or Jehovah's day, or the day of Jesus. And if you didn't accept this at the time, that you were frowned upon. And then later on, when they just started this calendar... You were frowned upon. That was when there was no... It was the beginning of the the decline of the freedom of thought from that point forward. Uh, In the video, they said that Rutherford could not be intimidated. He was brusque. He didn't fear to tread on anyone's toes. And this is true from all accounts that uh, if you look at the history, uh, he wanted to do things his way, and he always did things his way. But they try to state that uh, the Bible students of the time that were leaving the society were worshiping the creature more than the creator. Whereas I would say that they were trying to stick with what they saw as scriptural truth. The ones that stayed with Rutherford were worshiping the created society or the society that he was creating at that time. And pretty soon they got involved so much that they got to the point that if they had any disagreement with Rutherford or his successors, they would soon find themselves on the outside. And uh, that's all I have to say for now. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. Jeff, you said something I've never heard before, and I don't know if uh, any of the other brothers on the panel, uh, I never heard this idea of a calendar. And, you know, it kind of makes sense uh, they are so down on anything of pagan origin, and all the days of our weeks and our months so obviously go back to to uh, pagan foundations. But I never heard before that they tried to uh, 
to start their own, I guess you call it a theocratic calendar with the days and months renamed. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I got the well, copies uh, from Wanda. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> excellent. Well, folks, as you can see, uh, there's a lot of uh, documented archival information that uh, our brothers have compiled regarding the history of the society and the history of the uh, of the Christian movements in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, and this is all very, very useful in the in the pursuit of truth. It's pretty clear to me that the Watchtower uh, wants to to present a consistent, uh, if skewed, message uh, and perspective of, of who they are. They want to show themselves as very smoothly transitioning from one presidency to another and having opposition along the way and the light getting brighter all the time. But when you start to look at the details, that's not a picture that conforms very, very much to uh, reality, as you've seen. Well, you're listening to the uh, six screens of the Watchtower Telenet, and uh, Bible students are on this evening. We've been talking about the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the history of the Watchtower Society, particularly doing a, uh, a somewhat informal review of their movie, uh, Faith Action, which appears to be the first of several uh, discs that they will uh, publish giving the history of the Watchtower Society. We'd like to open it up to comments from uh, our friends uh, that are listening now, all of you folks out there. And um, we've got the panel standing by to uh, listen to your, uh, your comments and uh, take any questions that you have. And if you've uh, been involved in the six screens before, you know that you have to unmute your phone by doing a star one. So uh, we'd like to open it up now for comments from our audience. Again, star one your phone, and we'd like to hear from you. Who would like to uh, ask a question or make a comment? Brothers, um, can I, I make a comment? You absolutely may. What's your name? Um, this is Diane. And Hi, Diane. I left, I left the Watchtower and part of the Evil Slave in 2004, and I just... Really wanted to thank you for all the points you brought out. Some very, some of the, the, the biggest points, and I think that na analogy you made of the evil slave with Rutherford is much more fitting, and how his drinking habits and that, and he really turned around and beat the other slaves. So I just want to thank you. Um, I found it very interesting, really interesting, and look forward to more more talks. Thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Diane, for joining us, and we thank you for your uh, your observation. We're, we're rejoicing with you that you've come out from uh, and gotten liberty from that organization. And the truth is wonderful, isn't it, as you begin to see what things are really taking place and understand how the society has hoodwinked so many, uh, we can rejoice in that. So, Diane, uh, thank you very much, and I hope that you'll join us in, in future podcasts or uh, broadcasts as well. Who else would like Thank to... Thank you. Uh, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> I might comment, uh, the Bible says that uh, God has not given us the spirit of fear or fearfulness. So if we have that or are in that situation, we know it came from the other side. I just Indeed. wanted to add, uh, I was ridiculed by just saying that Jesus lives within all of us, and if we're Christ-like, then he'll, you know, if we walk in his footsteps and we accept him as our Lord and Savior, 
which they disagree with me that I told them for years that I just feel that I accept Jesus in my heart and want to be Christ-like and treat people like I want to be treated and they really are against that. I could never understand that. Okay, thank you, Joe. Who else from our listening audience would uh, would like to comment or raise a question? We'd like to hear from you. Who would like to go next? Hello? Hello? Oh, my name's Mike from Michigan. Um, Hi, I Mike. just had a comment or a question, I guess. Um, you were talking about the evil slave class, so... What what do you what's the is there any truth to what the society has written about uh, P was it P S L Johnson? I know if you read like in the I think in the seventy five year book, you know they kind of really act like he was like the of this so called opposition to Rutherford. He, they act like he was kind of the ringleader of that. Was there what 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 do you know about him? Okay, Mike, we're going to present that to the panel and uh, we're going to ask them to uh, to give a comment on it. I will give a quick comment. Uh, there's no question that P.S.L. Johnson was probably the uh, the, the chief um, uh, adversary that Judge Rutherford had at that time. P.S.L. Johnson had uh, had worked as a pilgrim uh, during Brother Russell's time and uh, was a very intelligent, uh, had a photographic memory, and he began to pick up on the inconsistencies of Judge Rutherford very quickly. Uh, in uh, in one of his books, he published a series of books, about 17 volumes of his theology in the in the 20s and 30s after he left the society. But in one of them, he gives a blow-by-blow uh, description. He used to live at Bethel, and uh, he got back from a trip once, and the judge had packed his bags and put them outside on the stairs. And when he got home, uh, there was all his belongings on the sidewalk with uh, several strong brothers with their arms folded, and Judge said, you're not welcome here anymore. This isn't your home. Leave. So uh, he did leave, and he published a magazine called The Present Truth. And uh, from that magazine, uh, he would take a uh, – he fought a doctrinal war with uh, the judge through the 20s and 30s. Every time the judge would come out with another doctrinal position, P.S.L. Johnson would publish uh, uh, another uh, perspective on it. And so there was uh, – believe me, there was no – uh, love lost from uh, from the uh, uh, Rutherford side toward uh, P.S.L. Johnson. Let's see, Jeff. I see that you have uh, a few thoughts on that. Hello. Yes. Thank you. All right. Uh, the P.S.L. Johnson and the P.B.I. Uh, the Pastoral Bible Institute uh, started together. They started publishing a couple of periodicals called the Committee Bulletins, the Committee Reports. Uh, they were trying to figure out, as they were coming out of the society, what direction they should take as brethren. Since they they couldn't work within the society, they were trying to figure out how to work outside the society. Uh, you'll find those magazines, and uh, along with the Herald's own publication from 1918 forward at the Herald uh, of Christ's Kingdom website, www.heraldmag.org. But uh, they... Uh, even had gone to the lengths of contacting the lawyer at the time. And the lawyer had agreed with them that uh, Rutherford had manipulated the legalities or done a lot of illegal things in order to forcefully gain control of the society. And the brothers were preparing to sue the society and re- retake control. Well, there's there's a scripture in First Corinthians chapter six 
talks about how we should learn to judge amongst ourselves and that we shouldn't be taking our disagreements with each other to the, the courts of law. Some of the brethren had written into the PBI or the brethren at the time and shared this scripture with them. And because of this scripture, they decided it was more Christ-like to back off and just go their own way instead of pursue this in the courts. However, I believe that if they would have pursued it in the courts, it would have gone, you know, their way. But with Johnson's personality, he was very much, I think, a lot like Rutherford in some ways. He wanted uh, to do things his own way. He had his disagreements with the Pastoral Bible Institute and also decided to to separate and, and go his own way. And he started his own publication and brought in his own, I guess you could say, unique interpretations. I guess is the kind way to put it. <laughs> but if you compare the articles between the Watchtower magazine, the Herald magazine, and the Bible Standard and Present Truth magazines of the 1920s, you'll see almost a back and forth between the Watchtower and the Present Truth magazine. Or the Bible. You'll see between the Watchtower and Johnson's group in their periodicals. And you won't see that from the PBI. The PBI would generally stay out of it, but kept quiet and tried to show a Christian attitude and only produced articles that would be of a... Of a but even when uh, Johnson wrote things against the PBI, uh, they attempted to remain silent as much as possible. A very much different attitude from both Rutherford and, and Johnson. Mm-hmm. All right, well, thank you uh, very well, much, uh, uh, Jeff. You know, I... One of the things that uh, PSL Johnson had done, and, and Mike, thank you very much for your question. That's a, that's a great question that you uh, propounded for us. Uh, PSL Johnson followed the society in essentially closing the door to the high calling. I think he even put a date on it that the door to the high calling closed sometime in September 1914. Uh, even the Watchtower wasn't so precise as that, uh, and began to look to... Uh, other classes, if you will, of, uh, of those that were called and worshiping God afterward. But uh, certainly, P.S.L. Johnson was the chief nemesis of Rutherford uh, during that time. Uh, Rolando, uh, you have successfully, a uh, David? Oh, yes, Jim, yeah, I think he would qualify as the uh, chief nemesis in that he was the uh, sort of physically and orally strongest one that stood up against him but he was um, not leader of a majority uh, faction. Um, Now, I also want to say that much as I differ with uh, Paul Johnson on the closing of the door and some other things, that I will testify that the layman's home missionary people today who trace their uh, beginnings with him are, in my way of thinking, almost all above reproach. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, thank you. Rolando, you have something to add? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I, I, I kind of lost my thought there. But uh, it's interesting because, you know, as, as Mike mentioned, um, when, whenever you read any of the society's historical books uh, about what went, what went on in, in, in 1917, 1918, poor Johnson, that poor man, he, he gets the brunt of, of, of all their, their, their anger. And, and, you know, it's like, it's like beating a dead horse. And they, it's kind of like they blame him for everything. Like he was the big ringleader and started everything. 
and to be honest, he was just one of many uh, uh, aggravated brethren who were just upset and, and fed up with, with, with what was going on uh, without getting, you know, not getting any answers. But, you know, Paul Johnson was, um, was highly regarded by, uh, uh, by, by Pastor Russell. And um, there's still a bit of mystery uh, because we know that uh, Paul Johnson uh, had been uh, uh, sanctioned to, to travel to, to, the, to England because there were some problems going on there. Now, we don't know what those problems were because Pastor Russell never got an opportunity to sit down with, with Paul Johnson to tell him what was going on um, because he died. And so, uh, and respecting Brother Russell's will or wishes, uh, Judge Rutherford and the, and the little committee send uh, Paul Johnson uh, to England to find out, uh, just kind of like look around and see if he can figure out wh what what the pastor was alluding to uh, as to a problem. And uh, you know he 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 talks about it in detail in, in his own writings, uh, in his epiphany studies in the scriptures and, and the Present Truth magazine. Um, but um, at that point um, when he comes back to the United States, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, he finds his, you know, his uh, his bags uh, all on the on the front steps of, of Bethel, and you know, eventually he was he was kicked out. And uh, and then, of course, as Jeff mentions, he joins forces with uh, uh, those who would eventually form the PBI. But apparently, uh, they had some doctrinal differences. Paul Johnson believing the door was closed and the PBI believing it was still open, and so they parted ways. And about the same year, 1918, towards the end of 1918, the PBI came out with the Herald, and Paul Johnson came out with his uh, uh, the Bible, the, the Epiphany, uh, the Herald of the Epiphany, and then he came out with the Present Truth magazine. Um, and, and the uh, Bible Standard. And the Bible Standard uh, came out uh, some years later. But, uh, you know, it was... It was, um, and he wrote, as you said, 17 volumes. He wrote profusely. Um, and, uh, you know, he had some claims for himself. Uh, he believed that he was a, a special messenger of God, the epiphany messenger, and that uh, he also believed that uh, he was the, the last high priest on earth, and that when he died in 1950, 1950 that he was the last member of the little flock, that uh, the door was closed. So these are... You know, beliefs that the layman, those who are here to the layman, believe that Johnson was the last of the uh, of the little flock member, um, and uh, they also believe that there are no more spirit begotten on the earth today. They're all they're all gone to heaven. Um, so in, in in that way, they they share a, a similarity with the Jehovah's Witnesses, believing that uh, um, that they will inherit the earth um, because uh, the doors close. Okay, well, thank you. Mike, again, thank you for that question. I ask question. a question? It, it is interesting that the PSL Johnson is not mentioned at all in the, uh, in the Jehovah Witness video there, but, of course, they're emphasizing more all of the positive aspects of them and just grouping all of the uh, adversaries of, uh, of, the, of uh, Rutherford together uh, in, in one. Well, folks, you're listening now, to the um, Six Greens of hey. the Watchtower. Uh, this is the Telenet, and it's the Bible students. We're talking about history. And we want to open it up uh, to uh, you folks to ask questions or make comments. All you have to do is hit star one, and uh, we'll hear you. So who would like to make a comment next? Hi. Yes. 
Hello, my name is Tom. I just wondered if is Taz Russell was ever in the Illuminati. Okay, no. was uh, Charles Taze Russell ever a member of the Illuminati? Panel, who would like to comment on that? No. I would. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> you know, if you do a search of Charles Taze Russell on Google, you'll find a whole lot of stuff. And there have been people out there who have, you know, with the whole issue of the Illuminati and the, uh, um, you know, the Rothschilds and the skull and the bones and, you know, all these secret organizations and the Masons that, you know, he was a 33rd degree Mason. And, um, and you know, I've, I've gone through a lot of that stuff. Um, and it's all speculation. No one has ever come up with any proof that Charles Tess Russell was ever a Mason. In fact, uh, Barbara Anderson, who was a historian for the society and, and put together the book for them, um, actually contacted uh, the headquarters of the Masons, and uh, they wrote back to her uh, eventually and told her that they had no Charles Tess Russell anywhere on their roster. So, um, you know, and you would think that, you know, that they would want to have him on their roster and say, oh, yeah, Charles Russell was a member of our, uh, of our um, there's even a website that talks about the famous people who are Masons. And on, a, on another page, they have famous people who are believed to be a Mason but are not. And Charles Russell is listed as one who is not. Um, but, yeah, there are people who are really stretching the imagination to try to, to prove that uh, uh, not only Charles Russell but Judge Rutherford and the whole society is part of this secret organization to kind of take over the world. And it's, it's just something that, that comes out of a, a science fiction book. Okay. Jeff, uh, Jeff, you have a thought regarding his uh, being a member of the Illuminati. What, what, do you have, what have you found, Jeff? Uh, before that, uh, just a reminder, there was another gentleman before Tom uh, spoke up that was trying to get a comment out, and he wasn't able to get out. So... Uh, okay. Perhaps after I finish, he can he can continue. But uh, right. a lot of the the concepts between uh, you know whether or not Brother Russell was a Mason or not, it's all circumstantial evidence. They look at the cross and crown symbol, which of course some Masons use. But then you'll find that it's on Lutheran churches and Baptist churches and a lot of other churches. William Penn. Uh, wrote a book called No Cross, No Crown. Uh, They'll look at the uh, winged sun disk on the old Millennial Dawn uh, uh, volumes or or, uh, books and say, oh, he used a a pagan Egyptian symbol. Yet when you look at a lot of the archaeological evidence of the uh, uh, post-Babylonian captivity period, you'll find that same winged sun disk on a lot of the Israelite altars and and temples. They were using it in reference to the Malachi scripture that talked about the sun of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. Uh, they also look at the pyramid grave and say that, well, you know, this is also another Masonic symbol. Yet you'll find, just by doing a simple Google search, look up Great Pyramid and Bible on Google, on the Google Books section, and you'll find dozens and dozens and dozens of books of other Christians in the late 19th century who were 
looking at at this concept that perhaps the Bible and the pyramid uh, could relate to each other. Uh, one of them being the great Lutheran uh, prophetic writer Joseph Seitz. Yet uh, some will suggest that he got the 1914 date from the pyramids, whereas that's a, a complete fabrication. This is something that he was teaching before he even had that concept. The idea came from a book from the 1840s called uh, Hori Apocalyptica that uh, Nelson Barber had found. And they'll even point to the, his grave today and say, look, down at the bottom of the hill, there's a Masonic temple, and it's on the same land. Yet, if you look at the old photographs, you look down at the bottom of the hill, it was one of the brethren's homes down there. There was no Masonic temple there in those days. It was a plot of land that the society had bought to... Uh, have their own uh, burial site. So, uh, again, most of their circumstantial evidence uh, seems to fail when you look at it much more closely. Okay. Uh, David, yes. I might add that uh, if one compares the uh, teachings, the Illuminati, the Masons, others have been interested in uh, how they could save the world and how they could come out on top of it whereas Pastor Russell's teachings were this world will come to an end. In fact, it will self-destruct before the establishment of Christ's kingdom. That's quite okay, a contrast. Quite a contrast, indeed. Uh, Brian, you have a thought uh, on uh, the Masonic Temple there. Well, yeah, the Masonic Temple that's uh, located uh, just to the side of the uh, of the cemetery where Brother Russell is buried and a number of other Bible students and witnesses, I assume, as well, because most of the uh, tombstones are dated in the 70s and 80s and 90s of the, of the, 19th, of the 20th century. Anyway, uh, that, that Masonic Temple went up sometime in the uh, mid to eight, late 18, uh, 1990s. Uh, I remember going there in 1984, oh, sorry, sorry, 1977, and uh, there was, there was a, a pit where the basement of the old house was. Uh, the house was uh, was lived in by uh, with uh, I think it was Brother Bonnet who who lived there. He was the caretaker of the cemetery, and it's my understanding that that was the Russell family farm originally that property, and uh, that was apparently sold off. Brother Russell was a real estate uh, broker. Uh, the, the the house uh, was sold eventually. The watchtower probably took care of that after Brother Russell died, and uh, it was torn down. Uh, I found a couple bricks, and I have one of them here. From I, I think it was from that house, uh, and uh, but but that uh, was back in the uh, again in the late 70s and early 80s when I was there, and then again visiting it through the years, uh, it was sort of on our way to one of the Bible student conventions. So we'd go by the uh, cemetery and uh, see Brother Russell's grave and the other brethren that were there, and uh, one year suddenly there was construction, and this was in the mid 90s. And uh, later on, a couple of years later, there was a Masonic temple. I was very surprised, but uh, that's uh, that's what's there. But it had nothing to do with Brother Russell. He had been dead for 60 years, so 70 years. So, but you know, what what, do, what can he have to do with it? Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Brian, very much uh, for uh, for that insight. So, the question you said was uh, was Charles Russell part of the Illuminati? There is no evidence for that. No evidence for him being part of the Masons. In fact. Uh, uh, that was pretty interesting that there was actually an inquiry made to, to see whether he was ever a member, and, and the answer was no. 
you're listening to the Six Screens of the Watchtower Telenet. Bible students are on tonight. We're talking about history, and uh, we are now taking comments and thoughts from our audience. Please uh, put, hit a star one to comment or to ask a question. Who would like to uh, speak next? Can I ask a question? Hello? Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Who are we talking to? Good. Okay. This is... Um, this is uh, Joe. This is the other Joe. The other uh, Joe. Okay, Joe. Go the ahead. The other Joe, right. I, I might, I, uh, might want to say that I enjoyed it very much. I didn't uh, get the entire program. I'm uh, sorry I didn't. But what I did hear was very informative, and, and I appreciate uh, the efforts of all of you brothers. Uh, I might. Uh, there is a question or a couple of questions that I'd like to ask, but um, there is also a... Uh, maybe a correction that might uh, might help, and that has to do with the Israel of God uh, and uh, how the JWs can, uh, see it at this time. Uh, the Israel of God, according to JW theology, is confined only to the 144,000, and uh, the remnant of which is on earth now, supposedly. And this is the... Israel of God, the other sheep, or the great multitude, as we used to call it, uh, that, of course, was, um, uh, this was the earthly group that would inherit the earth, whereas the 144,000, the spiritual Israel, would uh, go to heaven, and they would be a heavenly class. Uh, the, so that's, that's uh, one statement that possibly it, it might help. But my question now is, who is the evil slave according to the International Bible students today? And the second question is, uh, as far as I think you may have uh, answered it, but uh, Johnson's group, uh, is there such a group uh, evident today and functioning today? Those are the two questions I'd like to ask. Okay, Joe. Well, thank you very much for joining in. And uh, panel, he, uh, Joe has uh, propounded two questions. And by the way, Joe, thank you for that, uh, that correction and that update. Uh, trying to uh, pin down the Jehovah Witness doctrine sometimes is trying to hit a moving target, but we do appreciate you uh, letting us know about their definition of the Israel of God. So panel, uh, Joe asked two questions. Uh, do the Bible students have a, uh, an opinion on who the evil slave of uh, Matthew is? And second of all, is the uh, group founded by PSL Johnson still active today? Who would like to do that? Rolando, I see that you uh, would like to comment. Go ahead. Sure. Um, Well, as to the first question, well, you know, you you probably have a different view. I mean, there can only be one or two views, Um, whether or not the slave uh, is a... Uh, a class or an individual, um, and the the view of the of, of of the Paul Johnson and and still held today by the Layman's Home Missionary Movement followers of Johnson is that uh, Pastor Russell was that faithful wife's servant, and that Judge Rutherford was that evil servant. And you know I, I have to admit, uh, as was mentioned earlier by by someone a female I forget her name, um, uh, Judge Rutherford does indeed seem to fit the bill of the evil slave. Uh, he delayed the Lord's coming. 
He said the Lord delayeth his coming, uh, and he moved it from 1874 to 1914, and then he started beating, uh, you know, spiritually wise, and in some cases physically, uh, the, the, the brethren who would question him. And uh, he certainly did uh, had, a, had a drinking problem, and so he, 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 he hung out with the drunkards. Um, but there is a, 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 another view, and one that I'm uh, a, a little bit more uh, um, lean to, and in um, Matthew 24, uh, 45, if you look at the, um, the diaglot rendition, um, and you look at the word for word, uh, it isn't so much that that there's a faithful slave and an evil slave, but that the Lord is speaking to that slave upon his return, and he says, now if that slave should say in his heart evilly, the Lord delayeth, this is a totally different spin. So it, it shows that the faithful slave can become unfaithful, and then as a result of his unfaithfulness, become uh, evil. And uh, as I believe that Pastor Russell was that faithful slave, I believe he was faithful and uh, did not turn his back uh, on the Lord. Uh, I'll leave it there. All right. Thank you, Rolando. Okay. Could, could I comment yeah. on the second question? Oh, oh, okay. And, uh, uh, Jim, uh, you can uh, comment on it, and then we'll follow up. Jeff has a comment as well. Sure. Um, the Layman's Soul Missionary Movement, which is from Paul Johnson, uh, continues to publish today out of, I think, Chester Springs, Pennsylvania. I don't know that they have a website. The Pastoral Bible Institute that started in December of uh, 19... 18, I think it was, continues to publish today. They have a website, heraldmag.org. That's heraldmag, one word, dot org. You can get all of the issues uh, from the end of 1918 until uh, today on that. And then there's uh, the, a group that started in the area of 1930-1931, the Dawn Bible Students Association, they have a website, dawnbible.com, from which you can get uh, many issues of their magazine that's been publishing since 1931. The laymen do Thank have you. a website, biblestandard.com. Thank you. All right. Jeff, you have a thought. Hi. I just wanted to say that I uh, thought that his comment on the Israel of God was interesting. Uh, you do see many groups out there today that... Uh, are involved in what you, I guess you could call replacement theology, where they replace uh, the, the prophecies of Israel uh, with themselves, except only the prophecies that are favorable towards them. Uh, all the prophecies that are unfavorable towards them, uh, they would interpret differently, even when within the same context. Now, I remember having a discussion with Jehovah's Witness on this this particular point years ago, and we were going... I think it was verse by verse through Zechariah 12 or 14. And I pointed out that, you know, in this chapter, it's interesting. You know, you, you seem to intimate that when Israel's returned to their land here, that was that would be uh, a symbol of the Jehovah's Witnesses being gathered together again in the last days. 
But I said, you know, it's interesting. Here, they're gathered to the land, but if you notice, they're gathered here in unbelief. It isn't until the Spirit's poured out on them when all the nations come against them to battle that they become believers. And that ended the discussion real quick. <laughs> but anyway, the other sheep concept was uh, also another change of doctrine, uh, uh, of course, uh, seeing themselves as the great uh, company that would be on the earth. And uh, Bible students had taught in the past that not only would the great crowd or great company be in heaven, like Revelation 19 verse 1 says, but uh, not only the 144,000, the great company, but there would be another group that the, the 144,000 would be judging over on the earth. And that would be the masses of mankind, such as the unbelieving Israel, who would be converted by the pouring out of the Spirit. And uh, like Zechariah 14, verse 16 says, that uh, even of the nations that were left, that went against Israel to battle, they also would go change some unbelievers and would go year to year to worship the king, to worship uh, the Lord in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, I was also going to give the website thebiblestandard.com as one of their websites. Uh, like Bible students, there are many, many websites that uh, we have and they have as well. But uh, they do have a link to find them. Well, thank you, thank brothers. you very much for your question. Uh, we appreciate that. I, I think that there's hey, something... Can I make one uh, more comment? might be helpful, too. And yes. I, and I very much for answering that question. You were very uh, nice. Uh, but I might just uh, embellish upon it. Uh, the uh, theology of JWs uh, have been vacillating relative to this, to the um, uh, to the Israel of God, and uh, they now claim that by extension, and you've heard that word before, the Israel of God, uh, which are the 144,000, or the remnant on earth, have been joined by the great crowd of the. Uh, great multitude, and uh, and by extension they are they are um, uh, they are involved. However, uh, this raises a very interesting question: Does the ransom apply to the great crowd, according to uh, the theology of JWs? The answer is no. And after 73 years, it's 1985. Seventy-three years, that door has been closed. It was opened after that, after 73 years, in one of the watchtowers uh, in, from readers. And now it, uh, the 144,000 or the, the um, door was opened for others to become involved or born anew uh, and become anointed. So you have a vacillating concept, and I believe you wanted to know some of the doctrines that have differed over the years. That's a very important one, and uh, it's something to, uh, to bear in mind. And appreciate the information, brothers. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Joe. We appreciate your input. Uh, you know, I wanted to make a comment. Uh, you had asked uh, what the Bible students thought about the evil slave, and, and as you can see, there's no unanimity of thought there. In general, uh, most of the brothers and sisters in the 
Bible student movement uh, want to avoid making judgment of individuals, uh, even when the association is, is strong. But one of the things about the Bible student movement that you have to, rec- have to recognize is that we have a great deal of Christian freedom, so uh, it's not necessarily true that every Bible student believes the same things on, uh, on different subjects. And in fact, uh, on uh, much of prophecy and uh, sometimes on the types and antitypes, you'll find quite a wide variety of opinion on things. That's to be expected where there is freedom to exercise uh, your own thought and to draw your own conclusions. There certainly is unanimity on uh, a number of basic doctrines like the ransom for all. But in other areas, you'll find that there's a, a wide variety of, uh, of thoughts, uh, at least no unanimity on, uh, on certain prophetic matters and things like that. Quite different from the society where the unanimity is imposed, uh, it becomes a requirement. Well, friends, we're still uh, looking for feedback and questions uh, from uh, you out there. Uh, please dial star one, and we'd like to hear from you. Who would like to... Uh, uh, make a comment back. By the way, there, I hear some background noise. Uh, if someone is uh, uh, has their microphone on and uh, is uh, cr- wrapping some paper or something like that, we appreciate everybody watch the background noise. Who would like to speak? This By the way, I'd like... Go ahead. Okay. Now I just want to say real quick um, how nice it is for me to be on here, and I got um, baptized with the Bible students in October, but I've been with them since August and came out of the Kingdom Hall for over four years. I attended with them, never baptized with the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I could see a lot of difference. But one book they no longer carry, and it's funny how they quit putting in print after I left, was the Proclamation book. And that's how I got introduced into Charles Russell, but reading the things in there and seeing what they were teaching, obviously I thought, why are they so off-base and not continuing this? And more I read with the Bible students, and now I understand. And with this film that they showed... I see that it seems like they're trying to more enchime it like with their Watchtower versions of to be a Jehovah's Witness, and it's like, well, to be a Bible student in general and to learn what Charles Russell taught me. So I'm just trying to think if anybody else sees that they're trying to, I guess the way the um, elder is speaking or the governing body, whoever is hosting that, seems like they're trying to make it more to what they all say and not give the Bible students any credit. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for your uh, your thoughts. Appreciate you taking the time to comment. Thanks. I might say that uh, I've always been a little leery when somebody says, welcome to our hall, uh, check your brains at the door. <laughs> yeah. We want everybody to, uh, to use their brains and to use the sanctified reasoning that uh, God gave us all. Folks, uh, hit star one. Who would like to comment next? We, uh, we're coming up on 8 o'clock, and, and we had gotten a two-hour slot from Rick, but uh, he was very kind enough to let us know that we can go on a little bit further, so we'd like to hear from you. Uh, yeah, Rick, uh, David, this is, this is Rick Farron. Yeah, you can go on for a while. We've got, to, we've got some free air here. So, But i got a friend on here, Richard Rowie. He couldn't get into the program, so I got him on another telephone call, and he wants to ask you guys a question. So, Richard, go ahead right now. Great. Thank you very much for being there and answering all these questions and presenting these views. I learned one really brand new thing this evening, and that is the Watchtower taught that they had a governing body all the way back to Christ. I'd like some documentation for that because that's brand new to me. Also, it was mentioned about the uh, memorial attendance in 1925. 
Richard, uh, nice to hear from you. Uh, great question, great comment. So, uh, folks, we were wondering earlier when the 1874 date uh, died, and it looks like Richard has uh, given us a date, 1940. Uh, panel, uh, Richard asked this question uh, about the slogan, Millions Now Living Will Never Die. That was something that the judge brought in. Uh, what did that refer to, and uh, do you have any uh, thoughts or uh, comments about that? Let's see, I think uh, looking at my board here, uh, Brian, you have uh, first thought on this. Hello. Uh, yes, uh, well, millions now living will never die. I referred to those living at that time. Uh, Judge Rutherford at the time thought that the kingdom was soon to come and that uh, the, the mediatorial phase would be set up and uh, that the uh, world of mankind who were then alive would continue to live on forever into the kingdom. Uh, their philosophy has changed differently. Uh, this day, now it's only those who are, of the, as far as I understand it now, this may have changed. Uh, last I heard, those who are of the Jehovah's Witnesses today will live through Armageddon. Others will not. But uh, that's what I heard most recently. So I'll stop there. Over. Okay, thank you, Brian. Jeff, you have a, a comment on, on uh, Richard's question, millions now living will never die. Uh, it was pretty much a lot of what I was going to say right there, that uh, it shows the transition of of thinking from the society that, you know, our salvation at that time was for all, for everyone regardless of belief in God or not, or opportunity for salvation would be made available to all, whereas today it's, you know, limited, if not completely limited to Jehovah's Witnesses of today, outside of extending circumstances. But uh, even, I think some of the brethren at the time saw millions now living will never die, as well as the uh, Finnish mystery as, you know, interesting fiction. Uh, Brother Jim Parkinson can relate a story of somebody who uh, was at the Bethel when Finished mystery was handed out, and uh, she remembered reading it through it, and her partner was reading through it, and she chuckled and laughed, and she read it, and she asked her, "What are you laughing about?" And she, you know, leaned over and said, 
you'll find out when you get there. And when she got to the same page, she chuckled and laughed as well. And this was a section about the, uh, you know, so many furlongs uh, from Pittsburgh to New York, as long as you took the Hoboken Ferry. <laughs> and uh, the Millions Now Living die, Will Never Die had uh, interesting things in it as well. All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. Richard, thank you again add, for your input. Uh, Jim, you have a little more? Yeah, I might add that there was a preacher at the time who had in his church marquee, Millions Now Living Are Already Dead. <laughs> well, the sense of humor is not lost among many of uh, those that worship Jesus. <laughs> I have a question. Yes, who is this? Yes, hi, this is uh, Cliff. Uh, I'm, hi, Cliff. I'm calling. How you doing? I, I listen in quite a bit. I listen to <clears throat> most of the comments, and I really enjoy it. Um, needless to say, I, I I was involved with the witnesses for a long time, so I'm, I'm I do not agree with a lot of the doctrine coming from Rutherford. And, and even when I was a child, uh, seven, eight, and nine years old, I used to listen to the uh, records that my father had. But I have a question regarding the millions now living will never die. And uh, I even think uh, that uh, Rutherford made a comment that uh, he made a mistake by saying that. But there is uh, a scripture, and I <clears throat> that is uh, something that Jesus had said uh, to the Pharisees, that those who believe uh, in him will never die at all. And, of course, they asked him the question, uh, you know, why did he say that and they didn't understand? So I was wondering, what is the interpretation of the Bible students of that scripture that those who believe in him will never die at all? Okay, that's a good question, Cliff. Thank you very much. Uh, Cliff, uh, do you have a specific uh, citation that we can look it up together? I know it's in, in John, uh, the book of John, but it's referring to the, I don't have the Bible in front of me either, uh, but it's okay. referring to uh, the statement that he made that uh, those who now believe in him will never see death. And, of course, the Pharisees commented back to him, uh, you know, how could that be? Moses and the other prophets, they've all died, so how can you say they will never see death? And they were uh, condemning him for making that type of statement. Uh, and uh, I was just wondering what the interpretation of that, according to the Bible students, would be, that those who believe in him will never see death at all. And then, of course, okay. later on, he made the statement that uh, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, I'll, suggest, Go ahead, I'll suggest one view, and that is if one reads it carefully, like one would from one of the six really good diaglots, that it's uh, really, um, he shall not see death um, to the age, or he shall not see death forever which wouldn't necessarily mean he won't die, but after his resurrection, he will live forever, eternal life. Okay, thank you. Anyone from the panel have uh, any other thought on, on that? Well, Cliff, thank you very much for that uh, for that input. Um, and I appreciate I the comment uh, Joe made. Uh, I had a comment. Go ahead. Uh, but I'm going to read that. I did look look it up on my computer here real fast, and uh, we're looking at John chapter 8, Cliff, I think you had in mind, uh, okay. verses 51 and 52, where Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. 
Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that he asked the devil, Abraham is dead, and the, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keeping my saying, he shall never taste death. That's the scripture you have in... Yes. All right, Jeff, you have a thought on that. I uh, just wanted to say that uh, I've been doing a lot of research recently on the theology and thinking of the early church. And uh, there's a lot of material out there on it, but there were a couple of views at the time of Christ that uh, they're, you know, the Sadducees were so Sadducee because they didn't believe that uh, there would be a resurrection. And the Pharisees, uh, there was a thinking amongst the Pharisees that uh, there were two compartments in hell, that uh, one was the bosom of Abraham and the other was uh, more heated place, I guess you could say. And there was another group as well that uh, saw death as an annihilation. And this thinking, of course, originated with uh, Greek Greek thought and mythology. Uh, you, you do not find this thinking anywhere in the Old Testament at all. Uh, a lot of the books I have on uh, hell, that would be from a pro-hell perspective. Uh, even uh, a new book that was published in the last few years called Hell Under Fire, where several doctors of... Uh, uh, seeing a rise, uh, uh, an influx of non uh, of non uh, immortality of the soul, or the concept that there would be there is no hellfire. This is uh, becoming a very strong movement within Christianity uh, these days, and they were afraid enough that they, or fearful enough that this is such a prevailing thought that they wrote a book. And even they agree in their book that it's not a concept you can find explicitly taught in the Old Testament. Uh, some suggest it's taught in the New Testament, and uh, you'll, you'll see it coming up in the early church as well. But the prevailing thought in the early church in regards to salvation was that everyone would have an opportunity for salvation, even the unbelievers who have died. Now, I have a, a book uh, by Oxford Press that I just finished reading a, about a week ago called The Posthumous Salvation of Unbelievers. And uh, Oxford is a very reputable uh, school. And uh, they have many, many quotations of, of those who suggest that uh, after salvation, thereafter death, there would be an opportunity for salvation. And at that point, they would never die. This is when the scripture was used the most within the early church. That thinking, of course, changed after Theodosius' edict in 381. Uh, I just read a new book called, uh, oddly enough, 381 by Professor Charles Freeman. It's called Heretics, Pagans, and the Dawn of the Monotheistic State. And his suggestion is that this edict of Theodorius was the beginning of the closing of the Western mind within Christian thinking that from that point forward, if there was any disagreement of thought, you would use your land, you would lose your job, you would lose your finances, you might even lose your life just for disagreeing with the, uh, the church that was in power at the time. And this brought about a, uh, the Dark Ages where even the philosophers and the scholars and the scientists and doctors at the time could not even bring out differences of thought uh, as well. And that did not really open until the Reformation, of course. Uh, 
So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with Jim. If you look at the Greek, it it is uh, a future tense that is stating that uh, if if you believe in me, you will you will not see death upon your resurrection. Is, is the concept that I think he's explaining there. Okay, thank you, uh, Jeff. Cliff, thanks very much for that question. I see someone uh, sent me a little note here, the Rutherham version uh, in uh, John 11, not exactly the same scripture, 1126, uh, where Jesus says, again in the Rutherham translation, and no one who liveth again and believeth in me shall in any ways die unto times abiding. So I think Jesus certainly taught, and Paul certainly taught, that for Christians that uh, we, we walk the footsteps of Jesus and we die. We die a death. We die physically. But I believe that, uh, and I think it's a general thought among Bible students there in John 8, that Jesus is talking about that, uh, that eternal death, that we may right. die uh, and fall asleep in death, but uh, we live in the mind of Christ and, and of God, and that at the time of the resurrection uh, we can look forward to eternal life. I think that's the general yeah, thought. The, the, the scriptures does say it is appointed for man to die once. Uh, it's appointed mm-hmm. for him to die, and then after that, the judgment. Yep, exactly right. Cliff, thank you so much for your uh, for your you. comment and your question. Folks, we're at 8.13. We're going to go just a little bit longer, and then we're going to have to wrap it up. So uh, we would invite you again, if you've got a, a thought or a comment or a question uh, for the Bible students, uh, by all means, uh, hit star one, and we'd love to hear from you. Don't be afraid. Who would oh, like yes, to hear uh, Just uh, one other question is... Uh, Jehovah's name uh, really God, or did they make that up, the Jehovah's Witnesses? All right, good question. Panel, uh, the name Jehovah, did the Witnesses uh, make that up, abscond with it, or is it uh, truly a a name that God uh, has given himself to use? Anyone have a thought? 